really appreciate that. So DJ and I often go back to uh, a trip to Israel, uh, and uh, when we visited that, one of the most impactful things for me was visiting the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. The, uh, the museum sits on the hillside of Mount Herzl, also known as the Mount of Remembrance. And it was probably the least fun and at the same time the most powerful stop we made in Israel. The museum is composed of nine different galleries uh, that depict the whole course of the, uh, the uh, Holocaust uh, from beginning uh, to end. And you can read personal letters uh, that were shared. Uh, you can see all kinds of artifacts and uh, watch uh, testimonies uh, on video of some of the survivors. Um, the individual stories there that uh, we heard were painful, tear-jerking, heart-wrenching. Uh, but what really gets you, or I should say what really got me, was the enormous scope of this genocide. I mean, it's completely heartbreaking to realize the vast number of people that were murdered in this attempt to exterminate one whole race of people. I remember standing uh, in front, and this was actually outside the museum, uh, uh, the nine galleries, they have a lot of exhibits out and beyond as well, and outside they have uh, what's called the Children's Memorial. And I was just stunned to read on this Children's Memorial that over 1.5 million children were put to death as part of this campaign. And one of the displays inside the museum that, that really arrested me uh, was a very simple thing. It was an enormous pile of shoes. Men's shoes, women's shoes, large shoes, little shoes, just all of these shoes jumbled and heaped together in one gigantic mound. You see, the, as the Jews were herded into these uh, massive gas chambers, they were instructed to take off their shoes before entering. The Nazi officials were telling them that this was a delousing uh, uh, station and that their shoes would be returned to them afterwards. And uh, the pile I was looking at was just a small portion of the shoes collected at one concentration camp just from the victims right towards the end of the war. And I found myself staring at that heap of shoes and, and wondering what kind of madman would want to exterminate an entire race of people? So with that question in our minds, grab your Bibles and turn to Esther chapter 2. Continue our study of the book of Esther. Today we're going to be introduced to the villain of this story, but uh, we have one incident uh, to finish with chapter 2 with the hero, or one of the heroes of the story, uh, Mordecai. Esther chapter 2, and then we'll move into chapter 3. Father God, we are thankful for the opportunity to study your word. We're thankful for how it impacts us and pray that your spirit would be free to work today 
in whatever way you desire in each and every life that's here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the end of chapter 2, verse 21, says, In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The in those days phrase is referring to the time when Esther has now been seated on the throne as king. And, and by the way, if you had this, you know, romantic picture of king and queen, you know, with two thrones side by side, sitting together, working on uh, progressing the kingdom and making it the best that it can be, get that out of your head. Uh, that's not the way it was at all. Uh, Esther had no power. The king did not share his power with anyone, let alone a woman. As queen, she had very little to do in way of any official functions, uh, minimal. Uh, And about the only thing that she was there for was to provide an heir to the throne, which the previous queen, Vashti, had already done. Her son, uh, Artaxerxes, would become king when Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, uh, was done. And uh, she she couldn't even see the king unless he called for her. She had a separate residence, her own servants, her own handmaids, some money so she could do things, but she couldn't even go out. She was a prisoner in her own palace. She couldn't take money and go out shopping or out to eat or mix and mingle with the people in the streets. But the only ones she got to interact with were her maids. And we'll see more about that a little later. But we know that Esther became queen in the seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign, and we're told that these events in in, uh, chapter uh, uh, 3 took place in the twelfth year, So somewhere in that five-year period, that's the in those days that this event took place. And uh, uh, it says that this uh, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. And we don't know exactly what that meant because you didn't just get to loiter around the king's gate. Uh, He wasn't just sitting there passing the time of day. Uh, He was maybe doing something. Now, the... Minor officials would sit at the king's gate to to uh, deal with people that came in with, with small problems that didn't need to go higher up. So maybe uh, Mordecai had, maybe Esther had pulled a few strings and Mordecai had gotten promoted to be like a judge or something like this and could uh, take care of small problems so they didn't have to bother the king with that. Uh, but more than likely what it means is that he was uh, hired to be... Uh, a uh, doorman or a a footman there at the king's gate. Whatever the case, he was there sitting at the the gate when he overheard uh, a couple of the officials whining and complaining about the king. And these two guys are named in the text, Big Than and Teresh. Why are they named? Well, because it was a way of authenticating this account, right? Those immediate early readers who, who would have gotten a copy of this text and read this, they could have known this guy. They certainly would have heard about him. I mean, these were big things these, as they end up uh, uh, creating quite a ruckus here. Uh, 
if nothing else, they could have looked up in the records and found out about him. So it's a way of saying, hey, this, this is real, verifiable uh, history that we're talking about here. So he names them, and, and uh, these two guys were trash-talking the king, which in and of itself uh, was risky because uh, the free speech was not in the Persian Bill of Rights because um, Persians didn't have a Bill of Rights. They, they didn't get that. So you, you start talking bad about the king, and that could get you in trouble right there. But these guys weren't just, just complaining. Uh, they were so upset uh, for some reason that's not stated in the text. They were so mad that they uh, decided to assassinate him. It says that they wanted to lay hands on the king. Okay, that it lay hands does not mean, you know, hey, bud, how's it going? Uh, you know, friendly type of gesture here. Uh, it's just a nice way of saying they wanted to wring his neck. They wanted to kill him. And, and we don't know why, but assassination was always a very real threat in those days. And, and in fact, that's exactly how Ahasuerus does end up dying some, some point down the road. Uh, the captain of his bodyguard uh, uh, assassinates him. Another story for another time. But... Uh, uh, Mordecai knew this was a serious threat, so he decided to do something about it. Verse 22, but the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, you know, if this had been like some action movie, Mordecai would have leaped out from his hiding place, subdued these two guys, and brought them bound up to the king with, you know, great pomp and circumstance. Hey, I just saved your life, king. Uh, but since this is real life, that's not what happened. Instead, uh, he did the smart thing. He told on him. Okay? Sometimes the smartest thing you can do is just inform uh, somebody else what's going on. And, and uh, uh, he still did a brave thing in doing that. I mean, you know, getting involved in political intrigue. Uh, here's a threat to the king's life. He doesn't know that it's just those two guys that are involved. There could be others, and so they might not look kindly on him becoming an informant. And any, anytime you're doing something like that, there's, there's great risk. But he did it because it was the right thing to do. And since he didn't have access to uh, uh, the king directly, he got word to Esther, and then she informed the king on his behalf. And verse 23 says, Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. So that's what I mean. Everybody would have heard or known about it. That's why the two officials were named. And, and apparently, as far as we would read right now here in the story, that's the end of it, right? No reward, no promotion, not even a, a pat on the back for Mordecai. And now, obviously, those of you that have read Esther and you know the rest of the story, you know this particular incident is going to come back around and play a major role later on. But, but for right now, it looks like Mordecai did his good deed and didn't get anything out of it. And, and I think even in that, there's you know, a good lesson for us. We should always be willing to do the right thing, even if there doesn't appear to be any reward or payoff for us. And, and that principle, of course, applies to any activity in life. As a follower of Jesus Christ, as, as believers, we should want to do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. That, that, that's what God 
calls us to do. That's what he wants in our, in our character and in our lives. Now, maybe others will not like that, right? I mean, there can be sometimes pushback. There can, there, there can be uh, risk involved in doing the right thing. But we're called to do it anyway. If you at work and you got all the other employees and they're, you know, kind of cutting corners or shaving off a few of the rules and you insist on doing the right thing, it might not go well for you. I, uh, I informed our, our school one time that the pop machine was not working correctly. Uh, that was back in the days before you could, you know, put dollar bills in. You had to use change and you'd put all your change in for your pop and then you'd get your pop and then it would give you all your change back. So you were getting pop for free. And, you know, I, I like free pop as much as the next guy, but it, it wasn't right. So I told the person in charge, and, and man, there was a lot of students that were really upset with me. And this was at a Christian college. There can be risk in doing the right thing. Uh, some backlash from other people or <laughs> as the end times progress and things get tougher it may be more and more persecution and backlash but we need to do it anyway because that's what we're called to do as believers the apostle peter put it this way for such is the will of god that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men you know, I've often been asked by people, I just, I just want to know what the will of God is. And, and I, I know what they mean, right? Uh, uh, they, they want to know if God wants them to go to a certain college or uh, take a specific job or maybe move somewhere in the country or marry a particular person. You know, they want details for their life. What does God want me to do? They, they want this blueprint uh, laid out. But, but do you know a big part uh, of the will of God is simply choosing to do what's right. And, and usually, it's, it's fairly easy to know what's right, the right thing to do, but it does oftentimes take courage and resolve to do it. And as I said, there may be times when there is no instant reward in doing what's right. Now, yeah, God does promise you know, down the road, eternity in heaven, we will be rewarded. We, we do what's right. But in the here and now, your good deeds can oftentimes cause hardship and backlash or at the very least, maybe they just go unnoticed, unthanked, unpraised, no reward, as it appeared for Mordecai. And yet God has a way, as we'll see in this story, of bringing those things back around to our benefit. So now let's move into chapter 3 and the introduction of the villain in this story. Look at verse 1. After these events, so sometime in this five-year period, after these things took place, after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. 
So, so this guy named Haman, he, he gets promoted to number two guy in the kingdom, which in that culture would be called the Grand Vizier. And he must have been someone with, with uh, uh, good organizational skills, impressed the king with his ability to get things done, uh, was able to do the work that would need to be done to uh, keep the kingdom running because he says, man, I, you're, you're in charge over all the rest of these guys. I, I want you as number one. And, and uh, since he is called the uh, Agagite, some people have tried to link him to King Agag of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were enemies of Israel, uh, they fought against Israel when when Israel left Egypt and was on their way to the promised land. The, the, the Amalekites were, were one group that tried to stop them and, and destroy them. And as such, they ended up uh, fighting. And, the, and there was uh, bad blood between them for decades and decades and decades. And um, uh, some people had thought, well, maybe that's what's you know, got this heritage between these two, and, and that's causing part of the problem. The trouble is uh, the Amalekites were under God's judgment and at, at a certain point were, were wiped out as part of God's judgment, and so it seems difficult to see how, how this guy could then be a descendant from that. So the point is we don't really know who this Haman guy is, where he came from, what his background is, what we do know is that the king thought so highly of him that he not only promoted him to this, this number two position in the kingdom, but he commanded all of the rest of the servants to pay homage to him. Every time he would pass through the king's gate, they were supposed to bow to him. And this was far more than just, you know, uh, a sign of respect. Or, or honor. Uh, you, you think of the Eastern or Middle Eastern custom of, of people bowing to each other like we shake hands, and it's kind of a respectful greeting. But this was, was something far different than that. It included the idea of worship, because in that culture, the king was considered to be an incarnation of one of the many gods that they worshiped. And now the king was passing that same status on, that godlike status on to, to Haman, hence the command to pay homage to him. And that then there was something that Mordecai couldn't and wouldn't do as a faithful Jew. And one of the things that surprised me when, when we went to Israel was, was the vast number of secular Jews, meaning they're Jewish by birth, but they have absolutely no belief in or nothing to do with the religion of the Old Testament or, or any other uh, religion for that matter. And, and the biggest percentage of Jews in the world today are secular Jews. They fit into that category. And, and the same thing existed in Persia back in the days of Esther. When King Cyrus, during the, the last days of Daniel, uh, when he gave his decree that the Jews uh, could return to their home country, their home city of Jerusalem, could rebuild their temple and reinstitute the worship of their God, only a tiny percentage of them went back and did that. The vast majority stayed in Babylon and then into Persia. They were comfortable. 
They were making money. Things were going well. And many of them perhaps looked at the circumstances. Oh, this was supposed to be our God, and look at what he happened to us and all this stuff going on, and they decided it wasn't worth it. But not Mordecai. See, if Mordecai had given up on God, if he had discarded the faith of his family and his fathers and his people, he would have had no problem bowing down to Haman. Then what difference would that make? But he refused. And so the king gave the command, here's what you have to do. Haman passes through the gate, which was a very large thing. When we think of a gate, you think of you know, a doorway like that back there or something like this. Uh, the, what they've excavated in these gates would have been as wide as, as, as this room, and, and lots of people could have been around it, and Haman comes through, and everybody has to bow down, except for Mordecai's not. And so all the rest of the servants are going, hey, what are you doing? I mean, the king commanded this. You have to do this. And it says day after day they were doing that, and yet he refused to give in to the peer pressure. He wouldn't bow down. And they kept bugging him. They're like, hey, man, you're going to get in trouble. You can't do this. Why aren't you obeying the king's order? And finally he told them, I can't do this because I am a Jew. It would be against my religious faith to show any kind of worship to anybody other than God the Father. And they decided that they wanted to check that out. Well, is, is, is that a valid excuse for, for not bowing down to Haman? So a bunch of them went and told Haman what was going on. And when Haman found out about it, it says that he was filled with rage. I checked out the original Hebrew, and guess what that word filled means? It means full. No. Full. There was no room for anything else but rage. No room for rational thought. No room for, hey, maybe I should get together and talk with this guy and figure out what's going on and hear from him. Rage completely consumed him. And because it had absolutely filled him, look what it led him to do. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. I'm not just going to deal with this problem just by handling Mordecai. For they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. He wasn't satisfied with just getting Haman punished, or uh, Mordecai punished. He wasn't satisfied with making him suffer through that. He wanted all of God, uh, the people connected with Mordecai, all of God's people, to be destroyed. Complete genocide. Now, chances are this would point to some kind of prejudice, some type of anti-Semitic feeling that was already in his heart, but it was the anger, it was the rage that led him to this murderous condition. And, and he knew if it was just Mordecai, he is the number two guy. He could, have, he could have commanded him to be killed and taken care of, but he knew in order to, to exterminate a whole race, he was going to need the king's support on this. But being a superstitious guy, he first goes and begins casting lots, what's called poor 
in, in the Hebrew, and, and casting lots because he believed the lots would be guided by the gods and would give him the best day on which to kill all these people. And so uh, a month and a day shows up, and it's almost a year later, but hey, he's willing to wait that time because in his superstitious mind, he believes that's the date that the gods had set uh, for this to be done. And, and then he goes to the king at that point. And he then tells the king some half-truths, some exaggerations, and, and some outright lies about the Jews in order to convince him. And, and Ahasuerus buys it hook, line, and sinker. And, and maybe, maybe he trusted Haman so much that he feel, felt like he just didn't need to, to check out the story, or maybe he just didn't care. Or maybe his head was turned by the large bribe that uh, Haman included in his proposal to kill all of the Jews. Whatever the case, this shows the incredibly poor leadership qualities on the part of the king, which by now you, you should be coming to expect from that guy. But the result was the king issued his irrevocable decree. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. So an incredibly dark turn to the story at this point. I mean, we're talking about the extermination of all of God's people, and being that this is a state-sanctioned and sponsored and supported event, it looks like it is something that could actually happen. This could be the end of all the Jews, because remember, even Israel was a province in this king's territory. He was ruler of the world, other than some far-off distant stuff in the west over there by Greece. And if you're like me, you, you got to wonder, what could make a man so evil, so, so cold-hearted, so ruthless that he'd be willing to exterminate an entire group of people, men, women, and children. And ultimately, ultimately, we know the answer to that question is Satan. Because Satan is in a war against God. And because the Jews are God's people, his chosen people through whom the promises of salvation would come and be fulfilled, Satan has often tried to destroy them. And the way he normally tries to accomplish that is through people corrupted by sin and therefore blinded to the goodness and the purposes of God. And Haman was just the latest pawn in Satan's war against God's one of the hymn writers uh, of Israel captured the thought of this, this war against God and his people in Psalm 83 when he wrote, For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, Come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind, Against you, they make a covenant. So, see, the, the, Satan's hatred is against God, but his tactic is to go against the people of God. And this particular passage in Psalms was written hundreds of years before Haman because 
Haman was not the first to try to wipe out God's people. And maybe you're thinking, wow, that's, that's really, really sad. But I'm not a Jew, so what does that have to do with me? What difference does that make in my life today? And I want you to think about it this way. If you are a Christian, if you're a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are part of God's people. And yes, we've often been able to share and talk about the incredible benefits, the, the wonderful blessings, all the good things that are ours because of, of belonging to God. But we need to understand that as His children, it also makes us a target. And yes, the salvation that was promised through the Jews has already come through Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand that Satan is still fighting his war against God. And that means attacking God's people. And if you've read the whole book, you realize that that attack is still coming against God's people. So the question for us is, are we going to be willing, like Mordecai, to stand firm and to do what's right even if it means being persecuted, singled out, put down. You know, the secular Jews of Mordecai's day, they simply capitulated to the culture around them. They just blended right in. Mordecai would not bow down, even at the king's command. And because of that, he had to make a choice, and his choice was to stand with God. He picked his side. He knew which side in the war he wanted to be on, and that side made him a target of Satan. So our question again, where, where do I stand? Where do you stand? Are you capitulating to the culture around you? Do you look like everybody else? Because, you know, Satan has a whole lot of things he wants us to bow down to. Money, sex, power, popularity, comfort, status, possession, applause of people, so many things fighting for our hearts. And you may say, well, I, I know I've given my heart to God. I know that I'm going to go to heaven when I die or, or he comes back someday. And I say, man, that, that's wonderful. That's absolutely essential. That is the starting point. But I have another question I have to ask you. Have you given him your heart, not just for that someday, yes, I'm going to go to heaven down the road. Have you given him your heart for today? To live your life for him today. To honor him in your job with your friends, in your recreation, in your activities, at school? Have you given Him your heart today so that when, not if, but when, those opportunities come to either capitulate to the culture or stand for God, 
you're ready to say, I know what side I'm on. And I'm standing for God. Would you pray with me? Father God, we're thankful again for the accounts of your word that you have given us, that by them we may grow and learn, that we may be strengthened in our faith. God, we know it's only by the power of Jesus Christ that we can stand, stand firm in a culture that is rapidly rushing downhill. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us. Thank you for the fellowship and the strength that we enjoy from one another, that we gain from one another to continue to stand. And help us to be your people who will do what's right, no matter what the cost might be. We pray this in Jesus' name.